background. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 and Matthew chapter 2 verse 18 was presented by Jack Crabtree on August 4, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute. Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. All right, lest we get too far behind, I'm going to begin. So we're going to be looking next at Matthew 2:18, and it's quote from Jeremiah 31:15. I'm not going to read everything that you have on your handout here, but so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So it's that quote from Jeremiah that we want to look at next. And what is it that Matthew is thinking when he connects that quote from Jeremiah with this event in Matthew, particularly the slaughter of the babies by Herod and then it's in that connection that he quotes this passage from Jeremiah. So there are a number of issues that I'm sure going to need to solve in order to do that, and I'm just going to go through my notes here. Where Ramah was, it makes sense that it would be Ramah and Benjamin. There were other villages named Ramah, one in Gilead, one in Asher, one in Naphtali, one in Negev. But I think it's probably the case that it's Ramah and Benjamin that is in view here. It's situated near the border of Benjamin and Ephraim, north of Jerusalem, along the main road that runs north from Jerusalem into the hill country of Ephraim. Several events occurred at that particular Ramah. Deborah held court under a palm tree near between Ramah and Bethel. Ramah was the home of Samuel. It was in Ramah that the elders asked Samuel to appoint a king over them. David fled to Samuel at Ramah when he was being pursued by Saul. Baasha, king of the northern kingdom, fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from entering or leaving Judah when he was going up against Judah. He sought to isolate Judah. Ramah was the place where the Babylonians kept the captives from Judah and Jerusalem before they were deported to Babylon. From Jeremiah 40, that Jeremiah was released by the captain of the guard there, was released from Ramah. So he, instead of getting deported from Babylon, he was set free, and then other events followed. It's also mentioned in these other passages, Judges 19, Isaiah 10, Hosea 5. I don't think those are relevant, but I'm giving you those passages because, just in case you decide they are. Okay, Rachel. Who are we talking about? The second wife of Jacob, who had been renamed Israel. 
He's the third of the great patriarchs of Israel, the wife that Jacob had originally and always loved. He had been tricked by Laban into marrying Leah, Rachel's older sister, first, and then only later did he marry Rachel. Rachel bore two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and and interestingly, they become the heirs to the land when the land is divvied up. So Joseph has two heirs who get portions of the land. And notice that Ramah, for what it's worth, is between Ephraim and Benjamin. Ephraim, Rachel's grandson, and Benjamin, her other son. Rachel died while giving birth to Benjamin as Jacob was journeying from Bethel to Bethlehem. While there was still some distance to go, Jacob set up a pillar to mark the location of Rachel's tomb there. We don't know exactly where Rachel's tomb is, as best I can tell, but Ramah is situated on the road somewhere between Bethel and Bethlehem, so it's possible that Rachel's tomb is somewhere in the vicinity of Ramah. The traditional site of Rachel's tomb is just outside of Bethlehem, but it is likely that the traditional site is wrong. I think that's a possibility. According to 1 Samuel 10.2, her tomb is likely further north than that. The traditional site is in Judah. 1 Samuel 10.2 locates it in Benjamin. So I think that biblically it's further north than the traditional site. Hence, it could indeed be nearer to Ramah than it is to Bethlehem. The last clause that's cited in the verse, why is Rachel weeping for her children? Because they are not. I've given you the Hebrew and the Greek there. Because they are not, literally. Jeremiah 31.22, the last rhetorical statement of this prophecy may shed significant light on the fundamental meaning of this prophecy. This is just my thinking here. In the Hebrew text, it reads... For Yahweh has created a new thing in the land, and land there is Eretz. I think our English translations translate it earth sometimes, but in the Eretz. A woman, and it uses the Hebrew word for a female, will encompass, and then the question is, what does that Hebrew word, savav, mean? A man, gever, and Gever seems to, and those of you who actually know Hebrew instead of are faking it like me can correct me, but it seems to be a grown man, a more mature man, and not just a male, is that? Yeah, because it also can mean a hero, a kind of heroic figure as well. Okay, so the question is, what exactly does that mean? It seems to me that it's a very important part of the larger context of what's being prophesied in Jeremiah. And if we knew what that meant, I think that would be an important clue to what the whole prophecy means. So maybe some time on that would be worth it. So I have a list then of questions that I think. Why Ramah? What is the significance of Ra being the location of the weeping? Why Rachel? What's the significance of having it be Rachel who's weeping? Who exactly are the children that Rachel is weeping for in this prophecy? And why is she weeping for them? It says, because they are not, so what exactly does that mean? That gives us the reason, but what is that reason? In Jeremiah 31.16, is this part quoted? I don't think this part is quoted by Matthew, but in Jeremiah 31.16, he says, your work will be rewarded. What does that mean? I think that's critical to understanding Jeremiah, and therefore may be critical to understanding what Matthew sees there in Jeremiah. Uh, Your work will be rewarded. What does they will return from the land of the enemy mean? 
in Jeremiah 31:16. Who's going to return from the land? To where will they return? And at what time in history are we talking about their return? What exactly are we talking about there? So generally, what light does Jeremiah 31, 17 through 19 shed on the basic meaning of the prophecy? And does that last statement that I've already alluded to, does that shed any light on the essential point of the prophecy, a woman will encompass or surround or whatever, amen? There's then some questions I think we need to ask about Matthew 2.18. What does Matthew mean when he suggests that what the prophet Jeremiah said was fulfilled by the event in question? What exactly does the word fulfill mean? What sort of relationship is Matthew suggesting exists between the prophecy of Jeremiah and the events described by Matthew? Exactly what aspect or aspects of the events in question constitutes a fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah? Is it the grief and the mourning of the murdered baby's mothers? Is it their grief and mourning that is the fulfillment of the statement in Jeremiah? Is it because the murdered babies were not? Is that what is fulfilling it? Is it because the babies were murdered in an attempt by an enemy of God to thwart God's purposes? Is that what's being fulfilled? Is it because the murdered baby's mothers were rewarded for their sorrow, as Rachel was going to be rewarded for her weeping? Is there something there? Or is it something else? And if so, what is it? What exactly is being connected with what part of Jeremiah is being connected with what part of the events? And what does Matthew then intend to accomplish by pointing out the fact that the events he is describing fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy? All too often, I think we neglect to ask this question. Matthew has a purpose. He's wanting to help us understand the events surrounding Jesus, his life, his birth, and so on. What's his purpose here? How are we helped to understand Jesus better by pointing out a connection between this passage in Jeremiah and these events? Is he meaning to offer evidence that Jesus actually is the Christ? Is it evidentiary in nature? Does he mean to underline the accuracy and the inspired authority of the scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures? Is it an apologetic for trusting the scriptures? Or does he mean to point to the fact that every aspect of the birth of Jesus happened down to the last detail in conformity to God's will and design and tell us something about God and his relationship to history? Or does he mean to highlight something about the significance of this baby that was being born? How the baby being born fits into the purposes of God and therefore is significant in the particular way that he is. I think by answering that question, it will help us answer the question of what connection is he even seen between Jeremiah and the events. Okay, and then I have a third note there, and I have absolutely no idea what that means. Well, let me make one final comment. I meant to say this yesterday, and since it's so critical to everything that we're doing, I've said this in some of my groups, but I think it's worth all of us getting on the same page here. A watershed event for me was in studying the book of James chapter 2 of James, where James is talking about that famous passage where he's talking about faith without works is dead, and he cites the example of Abraham, Abraham offering up Isaac and saying that his faith was completed by his works or whatever, and he makes a statement there, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay, remember, where I'm coming from, raised a Christian, Christian home, Christian church, Christian culture, 
for something to be fulfilled means one and only one thing. I mean, we all know what that means. For something to be fulfilled means there was a prediction in the scripture, and this event somehow was the event that that scripture had predicted. That's what we mean when we say the scripture is fulfilled, right? Well, I may be stupid, but I'm not dumb. (laughs) When I'm reading James, what's the passage that he quotes that he says is fulfilled? The statement is, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In my way of reckoning, that ain't no prediction. That's a statement of fact. It's a statement in the historical section where God has come to Abraham and reiterated the promises that he had made to him. And after reiterating the promises he made to him, the Torah says, makes a comment about the subjective response of Abraham on that occasion. On that occasion, Abraham believed God, and now it's making a comment about God's response to Abraham, and it was reckoned to him as tekayasune, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Well, that blew my mind. I mean, that completely destroyed my paradigm because there's no way I can responsibly understand James to be arguing that was a prediction, if you can dig it, that was a prediction, and Isaac offering up his son was the event that was being predicted by that. That's not James' point. And that set me on a journey to realize that when the New Testament authors use the word plerao, that we translate fulfill, when they talk about the scriptures being plerao'd by some event or some truth or some fact in the New Testament, their concept of fulfillment is much more plastic and flexible and expansive than the event that's been predicted and the event coming to pass. So how do we determine that? I think we have to take each case on its own and judge it on its own merits. The New Testament author is seeing some kind of connection between the Old Testament passage and the New Testament event or whatever. It's up to us to get in the mind of the New Testament author and figure out, by understanding how he understood the Tanakh and by understanding how he's understanding the event, we need to get to a point where we see the same connection that he sees. But... We can't limit ourselves. If we limit ourselves in what we think fulfilled means, we're going to be really hamstrung. So we need to widen our horizons and recognize that that connection can be many different kinds of things. And in my notes that I gave you yesterday called the three issues, I outline some of the major ways that that fulfilled can be used Probably not even all of them, but some of the most important ways that that gets used in the New Testament. Okay.